Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. Wealthy kids, black kids. I'm not going to get into what I know or what I don't know. Here's what I know. Just want to acknowledge that we're recording this on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri, Boon and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land and sovereignty was never ceded. Apologies for the recording quality of this episode. We had an opportunity to grab Judy on the way through town and the normal production standard will resume. Thanks very much and hope you enjoy. It's Marbo, it's justice, it's law, it's the vibe and... Uh, Hi everyone, welcome to the latest episode of The Lever. I'm your host Luke and uh, very lucky we all are to have uh, Judy down from the Byron Shire with us. Hello Judy. Hi, how are you going? Good, thank you. Do you want to be just first name Judy like a lot of our guests are? You don't want to like fully out yourself? Do you want to like, uh, you know, you're putting a persona out there? You want to be... Oh, I'll just mention my name is Judy Shelley. I have my own radio program called Multicultural Nation. It's on BFM 99.9 every Tuesday, 1 till 2, and you can listen to me. It's live streaming, but I'm only on once a month because I share the show with a lot of other multicultural voices. Mm. Your uh, your show, which I've been a guest on, and you've inspired me. In fact, I don't think I would have this podcast if I hadn't met you. Oh, and really? Yeah. That's awesome. Or if, you, if you'd, like, encourage me on to share my project that I was doing uh, on Multicultural Nation and because and, we were looking for diverse voices. So we've talked so much about, like, being white people who were very committed to diverse voices and what can we do to be good allies and your, like, your family's, like, so caught up with, like, multicultural stuff, so... Yeah, you, my that's been a real is project. My, my it, children are non-white, so indeed. it is a multicultural family, yes. directly. <laughs> and it sounds like most of your adult life has been well. You you know what it is to be a, a cultural other in another country and just mm. living and doing your thing, right? Yeah, and I think um, growing up in Sydney, it was just part of my life to be excited by other cultures mm. always. Mm. So you know, when I was growing up, I always had you know. Friends of other backgrounds is just a normal part of life. Mm. But then when I left home and started working, I ended up in a community centre that was right in the middle of Cleveland Street, Sydney, which is um, Little Lebanon. Yeah. And so, you know, I worked in a multicultural centre. And to me, it was always just fun and mm. exciting and mm. just a nice place to be around mm. interesting cultures, interesting people, languages. It's just like normal Sydney life mm. for me. Yeah. And then when I came to Byron Shire, it's a lot wider and it was, um, you know, an atmosphere where I didn't feel that multiculturalism was recognised or acknowledged mm. or celebrated as much as I'd like it to be. So I started to create activities that celebrated multiculturalism mm. in every way. And, yeah, and Including also festival. Indonesian culture because my children are Indonesian and my partner at the time was Indonesian, so mm. we became very involved in promoting Indonesian culture. Because when I went to live in Indonesia, I found that I was ashamed to be Australian Mm. because we then and until now still very ignorant about our neighbours. Was it the imperialism? Neighbours. It's just um, really more the Eurocentric attitude of most Mm. Australians Mm. because I lived in Indonesia as a family member. As an artist, I was very involved in the art community there. 
And so I was aware that people from Indonesia were traveling everywhere else across the planet, being highly respected and uh, celebrated in Japan, Canada, America, Europe, Holland, Mm. and not Australia. Mm. Never. Until Mm. now, it's very uh, little awareness about Indonesian culture initially. So I made a commitment to my Indonesian family and friends that when I came back to Australia, I just felt so grateful for everything they'd done for me as an artist. I wanted to give back by celebrating Mm. their culture and promoting it here because I was very ashamed. Mm. And we, you, um, uh, very nice of you to help me, to let me come in and be part of interviewing Eka, is it Kurniawang? Yeah, uh, Kurniawang. most famous uh, Indonesian writer mm. at this time. Yeah. Well, they, thought they, they marketed him as like the Gabriel Garcia Marquez of, of Indonesian, of Indonesian today, fiction, yeah. but in Indonesia, I remember him saying that no one knows that he is so well known and celebrated outside of Indonesia. Is that a political? No, it's more just because um, the culture of Indonesia was more based in traditional art forms like wayang kulit, storytelling, dance, music, but writing was never so much an important Mm. aspect of culture. Mm. I mean, of course, there's a lot of really wonderful writers in Indonesia today but um, it's sort of contemporary, mm. whereas traditional art forms go back thousands of years, mm. and that's what people experience on the in you know on the daily in mm. their lives is more to do with music, culture, things like that. Because participatory it's community, a, a lot of people traditionally were non-literate as mm. well, mm. so it's storytelling and sharing mm. through, you know, more yeah, listening, watching. Performances, and, and that's very political as well in yes. Indonesia. But he, I, I remember him saying something like, uh, "If they knew how famous he, and influential he was outside, they would probably try to censor him." Oh, but they just didn't happen. know through sort of ignorance, like because he has a very sort of post-colonial critique and a very um, uh, specific, like very strong political stance. So yeah, if you want to check out, uh, now I'm going to pronounce Echo it wrong, Eka Kurnia one. And he, he has these amazing, like, magic realist titles and core, like, central mm. engines of his novels. Hey? He's, well, censorship hasn't been and... so much of a thing in this era, but still, on in some ways, you know, the political uh, situation in Indonesia is complex, mm-hmm. you know, because I really like to There's express... layers of revolution and stuff, isn't there? Correct. So Sorry. I'm really wanting people to understand mm. that since the fall of Suharto, or when Suharto stepped down in 1998... Indonesia has had a much freer press than we have here in Australia today. Mm, really? And people mm. do not know or understand that um, basically they don't know anything about what's happening in Indonesia. Yeah. Yeah. But what happened in that time was, you know, the whole of the dictatorship, the censorship, which was extreme prior to that time, mm. was washed away. Yes. And a totally new uh, system came into place which gave really huge freedom of the press so when he said that, you know, sure, there's reactionary forces there that could mm. come out against him, yeah. but whether that would be the actual government, I'm not sure. Yes, because there's, there's a lot or... of reactionary, yes. you know, parties and um, movements within the country that can attack you mm. or attack things or people or situations mm. that it may not necessarily be the government, but prior to 1998 it was the government itself yes. that censored every single thing, but that's not the case today in Indonesia. My friends, 
father-in-law was a student protester in the 70s who went to jail, who upon release instantly went straight into the parliament and has been in the parliament ever since. Which was after the change of that government. See, when Suharto stepped down, many Indonesian activists returned to live in Indonesia. Mm. They hadn't even... They'd, they'd left Indonesia for decades. Yeah. But when he actually stepped down as a result of the massive one million people protesting and protesters being shot and, mm. you know, extreme fear of there being a civil war and he finally stepped down, the whole situation just was totally reversed mm. and changed and people just returned to Indonesia and, and started living a more open and free life there, activists that could never have lived under mm. that regime. So. That's something I, you know, feel it's interesting this just come up because a lot of people just basically don't really know much about Indonesia well, in was, today in Australia. I was going to yeah. ask, does, <laughs> does, do you think that kind of historical regional ignorance that Australians have, mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, that I've, I've seen a lot of talk about, um, uh, about repression and censorship and, um, you know, we've had two prime ministers sort of um, clap back at the Murdoch media and, and people are feeling like a lot of knowledge and culture is like splintered and there's a lot of like tension, like cultural tension, especially after the sort of COVID lockdown. I feel like we're in a bit of a COVID hangover, you know, like we've had restrictions ease. Like if you're not living in Adelaide right now, um, think things are on the east coast of Australia, like things are kind of relaxed and Melbourne's getting to, and Victoria getting to rejoin the rest of the country a little bit. Um, but we're in this weird kind of like, whew, like sighing exhale uh, of of the weird year and we're wrapping up the year in a weird way. But people are throwing these terms around. We've had the American elections. People are very passionate about that, myself included. But people are like, people are actually, we don't really know enough about real revolution, real suppression, oh, real violence, real civil people war. People are throwing around words like right. revolution. They're throwing away, they're throwing around words like, we've got to throw out the system and start from scratch. Yeah. And you go, uh, how's that going to happen? My social media oh. post got deleted. Like, no, my family was imprisoned and some of them are missing. Mm. I mean, there's a big difference, right? That's right, exactly. But it's a very interesting time right now because things have been a total mess. Mm. America is still like leadership a total failure, mess. right? This is... Australia is quite a big mess as well. But it's under the radar mess in Australia, mm. don't you reckon? Or do you think it's not so under the radar? I mean, it depends. It who you is hang out under with. the radar partly because there's a hell of a lot of stuff going on. I think there was something I mentioned to you today, and you had not heard about That's it. That's it. It's quite yeah. a major thing, mm. like things that the government's doing under cover of, you know, the COVID pandemic, mm. like what they're doing with money. What was that? That was the legislation. Well, it's a kind of a, a COVID. Um, Support, you know, financial support. Oh, for super rich people to reno their houses. Exactly. $150,000 you have to spend on a renovation in order to get a government grant of $20,000. So that's an immediate gift to rich people who have $150,000 to use on housing renovations. It's like there's so much going on that nobody can keep up with it all. Mm. As I said to you, I feel like, well, you know, the current government is closely aligned and funded by the fossil fuel industry. That means that our government We're going to is gas-led recovery, way we? behind gas-led recovery, <laughs> all this stuff going Shit. on. And, I mean, there's people fighting this all the time, as you mm. know. The Greens are fighting it. There's some Labor politicians that are fighting some of this. That mm. the way that I feel is that, you know, the fossil fuel industry and their friends are just throwing everything at humanity to mm. get away with 
as much Shocked corruption, as much uh, ripping off everything they can find, Run off with environmental yes. protections and getting as much money as they possibly can before they get shut down because economically speaking, coal is on the way out. Mm. Mm. And um, where do you stand? You know, one thing I learned off, uh, like I had this, I had this friend I, I did eventually have to block because it was like mm, he's he is not an ally, he's just yeah. a shit picker. Mm-hmm. But he did draw my attention to like the omnibus bill in Victoria, which was like expanding police yeah. search and seizure and detainment mm. and stuff. And you know, there's this kind of swell of libertarian mm. right, but they would cast themselves as moderate centre. Um, but they're like, no, we have to stop dictator Dan sort of taking over our personal lives and encroaching on our rights and stuff. And this is all around people being upset at having to wear masks, being upset at having their liberties restricted for public health reasons. Not quite in the COVID denial space, but certainly in the um, no, let's have a rational conversation about how many old people we're prepared to accept mm. dying. You know, that, that kind of space, not full denialism. Mm. And I found, like, I was like, well, the omnibus bill, I haven't heard this, read about and stuff, and I want to find out more and stuff. And mm. I checked out a couple of sources, and then I was like, oh, this is a real issue, but these guys are acting like we're in this, like, eureka stockade moment. And we are not. We're, mm. Dictator Dan's not running off with our well, liberties and stuff. Dictator. It's not happening like that. It's not It's not true. And I was like, you know, these guys, I've got a feeling these guys are trying to rope us in emotionally on masks mm. and, and assembling in public spaces without masks and use that to leverage us to basically reduce taxes on our investments <laughs> exactly. and uh, decrease mm. taxes that we pay when we pass inheritance on and, and things like that. And it's really a false flag kind of... Mm. R- false rights issue it's really going to be about protecting the wealthy and and i haven't seen these people muster themselves when the rights of like indigenous people have been like shat on all you know for, mm. since forever since my whole life and uh, or asylum seekers who are still mandatory detained or we've got um on belt just in bell street in preston here in melbourne you can there's you know mantra was it mantra hotel where they're detaining a bunch of people some of those people have been in detention for uh, six or seven years. So so I didn't see them making a big deal then, but now that people are getting very upset because of a mask and they can't see someone's face and they can't see the lips moving and they're very upset, now's the time to seize and recruit for this sort of libertarian mission. I'm like, where were you when all these other people were? You know, have you seen, is that is that part that fit in with the shock doctrine stuff, like trying to seize on people's emotions at what we can agree has been a hard year? Well, libertarians are political machines as well. Like they come mm. from a political machine and where yeah. is that connected to? So a lot of the libertarian type of videos and things like that, this is the main way that they promote their ideas is through mm-hmm. Facebook videos and stuff. And when you actually look closely at those videos, you see connections with right-wing organisations. Mm. But if you don't look closely, I mean, I've even made that mistake myself. You know, I saw something that looked really logical and correct and I I didn't see anything wrong with that and I sent it to some Facebook page and they wrote back to me and said no we can't print that that comes from a right-wing source and I went right I'm really sorry I didn't notice that so Mm. even watching that video did not indicate to me anything sus but the source was Breitbart or some far right right, you know because like they use the truth to get you in Mm. and then you start sharing their posts and then the whole ball starts rolling in terms of the Facebook, mm. you know, echo chambers and, you know, algorithms and yep. all that sort of stuff. So they do anything to get them 
they use the truth sometimes to get you into a little, yes. you know, like Facebook, uh, you know, rhythm. Yes. And then a lot of the videos that I've seen, like conspiracy theory videos and stuff like that, a lot of it's libertarian and a lot of it has direct references to the Republican Party or comes from a Republican source and says things that are pro-Trump. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of American uh, influence coming across from America to here to promote libertarian and right, far right-wing mm. ideas. And then when you dig deeper, some of these people that have gone right down that rabbit hole, they end up being anti-Semitic and sort of neo-Nazi. Mm. Well, Even we've had... average Australians, who mm. you wouldn't expect, and they've just been dragged in there. Even average cooking competition TV show hosts True. have been dragged, dragged into, in there. And we find this sort of... Crypto fascism over Pete Evans. Now I understand. Now I've been watching the Byron Bay Community Board, where they it's lit up because Pete Evans is this like beloved figure, and a lot of people who go in like they they come for the paleo diet tips, but they stay for the crypto fascist Nazism. Uh, This has been like a huge issue. I've really seen the Byron. Well, and it depends how authentic we think an online community is for the community itself, but. When I was staying up there and, and getting to know you up in the Shire there for that work project, um, I was struck by some cultural sensitivities that cut through the perceived unity of like the Byron Shire, which has its uh, distinct feel and so on, that the that the sort of the left-wing hippie alternative thinking, alternative health kind of ideas, actually, you know, it's almost a bit of like a vote for the horseshoe theory of politics that actually it's much closer to the sort of dissident right wing of politics and the kind of buried fascism and the kind of disqualified knowledge, uh, which is like an old Foucauldian term from when I used to study at university and teach. So I find that a real curiosity and sort of a shock, if you like. It is a shock, and that's been happening a lot. So as you know, Judy, like I, I'm like as I've exited the left wing like professional class or whatever and campaigning class, it's been like a relief for me to embrace a bit more heterodox, like bits and pieces from from here and there across the political spectrum, because I think there's a real critique to be had of the left. And the horseshoe theory I don't subscribe to, but the idea that, you know, there are some, you know, like usually when someone's got a right-wing view, I disagree with where they've gone with it, but the thing they're reacting to, I think there's something there. And if we're constantly like, if if constantly like on the left fighting the right and so on, we can get so so overwhelmed by the front and the battle that we like miss the self-critique that we could improve ourselves along the way and we become blind we have we develop our own blind spots and stuff so what do you think of that in terms of those like maybe argumentative divides or or different you know different very emotional deep disturbances that people have had over covid and liberty and freedom and markets and gas-led recoveries and all this like this full drama that we've had this year. What do you, what do you make of all that? It's been really in our faces in Byron because it's a really funny situation. For me, coming from Sydney, I come from a very political environment, so I know what the words left-wing and right-wing mean to mm. some extent. Mm. And to me, far-right straight-up means racism because it's part of it. If you go to the extreme far-right, racism is definitely a part of it and mm. militarism. That's where fascism and, division, and Nazism started. Division started and those, domination. It started with those principles. They right. were very pro-war, yep. the original fascists, and then Nazism came in with the same yeah. thing. And Irrational they, nationalism and, and intensity, like violent intensity. Yeah. Well, they actually thought that war was a great way for humanity to progress. 
This is where fascism started. So you'll find that people on the far right, on the whole, are extremely racist and um, violent. Uh, believe in violence is okay mm. and war not always but definitely racism is a major part of far-right politics mm. always in my experience mm. but the very funny and sad thing is when you're sitting in byron bay and you have these sort of very clear concepts about what left and right mean mm. and then you have friends i mean it's the biggest hippie capital town or whatever you want to call it in the world, mm. one of them, one of them, definitely in Australia. Mm. So hippie ideas are very much back to nature, but some of it tends to go and in the... alternative knowledge. So yeah. mainstream has discredited some stuff, but it could be alive and well in the Shire where it's like, hey, just because the mainstream discredited it, We've got people who believe this stuff which and we share this knowledge. Sure which stuff are you talking about? Well, we could go chemtrails, anti-vaccinations, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, 5G <laughs> networks. Lots of things like uh, that, yeah, yeah. I mean, as well as like alternative health. Like, um, you know, and it starts to get less crazy and people draw their own boundary. And we all think the stuff we believe is fine and then the stuff that's beyond the pale is out of control. But oh, I've got some conspiracy beliefs and... Um, so do I. Right. But I was just about to talk about the libertarian thing. So when, when hippie concepts t get taken to a far extreme, sometimes they end up with sovereignty and libertarianism. And sometimes those people don't actually understand what that means in reality because mm. it's more like an idea. Because they're talking about ideas. They're not living in a libertarian society. So they, they think it sounds wonderful. But, you know, when you get down to the grassroots, it's not. Well, my you need society that, you know, supports and protects citizens exactly. and those ideas do not it's just like they love ideas and they love these sort of concepts but sometimes it's not very practical and it's very idealistic isn't yeah. it it's like this perfect world of like on like one once i was in like a, a, a reading group at uni and i got accused of being someone who just wants to sit on my porch with a gun loaded you know and the, this libertarian <laughs> ideal and i can see where they're coming from but no you need a my critique of libertarianism why i reject it is it's like it valorizes the individual and it ignores, you know, um, I'm very critical of Barack Obama, but I love his you didn't build that speech, which was all these self-made people and businesses and the heroism that goes along with that. Um, you know, the roads that got them to school and the bike lanes and the, the, the jobs and the Correct. support programs and yeah. the food pricing and the financial stuff. When I'm in discussion with people, a lot of the time they don't actually know what's the difference between right and left wing. They don't know mm. what these terms mean. So what I'm discovering is a lack of education. Yeah. That's really important. So we've just gravitated outside just to finish this uh, interview off. And there's so many places this conversation could go. But I think you wanted to just make like a, a point about have like a grounding in where to place these concepts where we can start to frame what people are telling us and where we're weighing it up for ourselves? Well, I've just Something been really like surprised because sometimes, you know, you're just chatting with friends or you notice on your... When I'm talking about friends, I'm talking about my very, very closest friends mm. coming out with something like anti-masking or coming out with really right-wing stuff on their Facebook pages and they don't actually know or understand how to analyze it mm. at all. They're just re responding to it emotionally, and then they're swallowing everything they see, and it can be a very you know, right-wing politician who's sort of like starting to hide the fact that he's right-wing and saying, oh, I'm not right-wing, go ahead and prove it. Well, we've got Meanwhile, Matthias Foreman going on about his green recovery, oh, no, green this, uh, appropriation of green OECD. politics, mm. and it's um, a lot of lying going on. Bearing his decades of denialism. 
burying, you know, the facts of who they really are and um, people swallowing it because they don't actually know how to analyse. They haven't been taught or they just haven't been exposed to concepts like what is the word left-wing mean, what does the word right-wing mean, a bunch of other stuff. I have actually been asked directly by a flatmate, tell me what's the difference between right and left-wing. So you, as um, you know, inner-city Melbourne person, you have really clear concepts of what these things are. A lot of people out there in Australia land don't. Mm. They haven't had that education, they haven't been brought up in that environment. They can't really help that because... I mean, it's, I seriously, looking at what I've been through in these last few months, I really feel like the education system is letting people down. And I mean, it sounds cliche to say that, but how come people can grow up thinking that mm. some Liberal Party politician started Medicare? Mm. You know? Yes. And things that, like so, that. And that's what some people, that's what people that you say live with to have me, said to you, right? Have said to me yeah. right in my own house. Thank God Howard was there. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, he wasn't trying to shut it down every moment of his every waking breath. We live in a situation, maybe you and I, where we grew up in situations or came to university or did something to learn something about how politics operates in this country or maybe been, like myself, alive long enough and have a very long memory to understand who did what when. Mm. And a lot of people don't. They weren't interested enough to find out or they just didn't read or watch, you know, Sydney Morning Herald or whatever uh, newspaper Australia. that might have a little bit of inkling of what was actually going on in this country. A lot of people had no idea. It's almost a bit of an Australian generalisable trait to be proud to not be curious of history. I mean, we have to repress the so fact much. of colonial violence and so the incursion much. of even being here, right? So, yeah. so ignorance and and sort of willful oppression of information and facts. Repression are, of our whole background we, is we all just hidden by a, hidden you know, hidden on a daily basis. But How do you go run your small business mm-hmm. if you're going to think about like? You know, reconciliation or maybe we shouldn't be here every day. Like, it's impossible. How do you buy a house when you know that it's stolen land? Yeah. I had that conversation with a friend last Did week. Did you? They don't go. feel comfortable to right. buy a house because they yeah. know it's on stolen land. That's a man of principle and he's quite confused about that. That's issue. how I start my comedy gigs. Really? I say, oh, you know, people feeling anxious, people feeling okay, any millennials here um, worrying about the housing bubble, don't worry, it's all stolen land anyway. Like, if someone, like a guy... A, uh, a van rolled up to me in the Camberwell Market when I was a young man and tried to sell me a TV out the side door, and I said no. But I never regretted not buying the stolen TV. Mm. You know what I mean? I never thought, oh, I missed an opportunity there. So if you know, if you're out there and you haven't got land, don't even sweat it. You know. But anyway, yeah, it's just been a big shock to me because there's certain things that I just you know find really easy to understand. But mm. if you haven't been brought up with any sort of political knowledge or education whatsoever. Mm. And you, for example, may not even vote because you think it's, you know, buying into the system or, mm. you know, you basically have no idea how Australian politics operates. Is and then you're faced with all this uh, manipulative brainwashing sort of yep. videos and things like that and you just start believing everything you see because you think that everybody's as honest as you are and you don't realise that there's some very dishonest people out there that are dishonest setting factors, yep. their mind on manipulating you. They know better but they, they are in it to do well themselves, right? Do well for them and their little... Well, what motivates the right wing? Number one, I mean, there's a lot of right wing politicians that are in cahoots with the corporates. They yep. are, in, in, you know, invested in coal, in, you know, petrol, you know, oil and all that sort of thing. So there is an aspect of some of them wanting to exploit 
uh, people's ignorance to make money. Mm. Um, that's going see, on a lot. I see that existing on the liberal sort of quote-unquote centre and the progressive left of creating champions and lions out of people who are simply just getting rich off branding themselves with like progressive concerns. So, oh, really? And some of those solutions do involve like hooking up capitalism to have market mechanisms to stop destroying our planet and things like that. So the aims might be very noble and bold. But this is what makes me a bit heterodox since I got out of this like professional campaign again mm. is is to see how, well, yeah, there's some, like, a bit of material critique of where the money's moving to and stuff. Like, I don't see much changing in these progressive debates, largely, but what I do see is, like, a bit of wealth transference, if you like. So I'm not totally sceptical about it, but I want to, like, call it as it is. And making money off a brand and an agreed set of, like, values that you kind of put out there into the public sphere... Like, the right wing don't have a monopoly on that. But because they've got billions of dollars and interest behind them of corporate corporations and banks and international agreements and things, the, the power is, the leverage is so much greater. But actually, I, I see it on the left as well. But if I worked for a professional organi- a progressive professional organization, I couldn't say it. What do you think of that? Is that just spoil your brain or you're not interested or it's offensive? What do you think? Um, I think that you have got a very highly developed ability to critique things. And I think that's good. I don't think many people are doing it, but I think it's a good idea. Some people just say I'm an asshole. No, I think it's a good idea to always be um, looking deeper into every issue and what people are getting out of it. But ultimately, when you go right down to it, we have to save the planet from climate change. Mm-hmm. So basically, I'm happy if people are doing that. Mm. Simple as that. Yes. <laughs> and I think I've, I've seen that, like the climate climate change response and you know it's it's helped some people get wealthy and develops and stuff and develops some technology and i think that's very important but i actually see the indigenous land sovereignty issue that's overtaken for me and become more of a thing and i've started to see sort of white progressive australia from the point of view of listening to indigenous betters who show me how we look and we don't look great and and you know there's a reason why the green base in Australia is like super awkwardly white. You know, it's a real, it's a real problem, and I and there's lots of paths and opportunity for it to change. But I kind of feel like some of these things, and it's not the main thing. Like the main thing is like the damage and disturbance of like Nazism and racism coming back is a bigger problem. But also we can't find solutions until we name problems as well. So I'd like uh, to say something about that, and I'd like to please. say. Um, Great. I'm really happy that you brought up the issue of listening to Indigenous voices because part of the um, the whole world solution to saving the planet from climate change is listening to Indigenous voices mm. because they have the answers. And I will say that the world and um, the ideas of the world and the knowledge of the world is like a big jigsaw puzzle. Mm. And the Indigenous voices actually hold a lot of the pieces. Because the indigenous voices hold the knowledge, the deep spiritual, physical, emotional knowledge, and mental knowledge of how to live in harmony with the planet, and it's Which we have very, lost that. very deep. Like indigenous people in many places, not every single person of indigenous background, but in many places, maintain so much knowledge. The amount of knowledge that is held is absolutely unknown to white 
people in general. But then, like, they don't even have an inkling of how much knowledge there is, especially spiritual knowledge. Yeah, it's massive and it's very deep. But then that mold, I mean, and that's the good thing about the the fact that, say, in a place like Byron Bay uh, or the Byron Shire, you can have like disqualified knowledges given a hearing and an airing, and there's a that people are open. To, to hearing disqualified knowledge because I feel like indigenous knowledge is disqualified knowledge and to have generation upon generation be told that your knowledge um, whether spiritual or land-based or anything like that not that you can break it up has no value sorry it doesn't function in the market so it can fuck off like um, th- that is like super damaging in a way I can't imagine um, but th- there's so we've got to kind of you know, even if it means having awkward conversations about vaccination, um, you, it, it's got to be, I think, celebrated and encouraged when there are chances to sort of resurrect and take other looks at disqualified knowledge. Even if when it came down to brass tacks, I might say, well, good on you, friend. I don't agree on that one. Do you know what I mean? But the general idea of being open to disqualified knowledges, um, I feel like lockdown has had a very, there's been a very Melbourne version of that with all the masks and the the terrible COVID stuff, and in the Byron Shire with Pete, whether it's Pete Evans or the little lurking fascism going on there or whatever it is. What, well, what do you make of that? Basically, the conspiracy theories, because they're very attractive to people who are of alternative ways of living. Right. So then they just get roped in. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they're really fascists, that it's just they get tricked. It's actually yeah. trickery going on, so I don't oh, really blame them. Came for the them. paleo, stayed for the... <laughs> That's it. But I'm just going to go right back wing. to Indigenous voices because what I'm getting at is... Um, I'd just like to mention something I learnt from an Aboriginal young man who um, is a spokesman for their culture. And one day he just told me about the different value system, which I had no knowledge about at my age after living all these decades in Australia. Mm. And he's a young man of 21 years old and he's, he's very vocal and he's a musician and he's, mm. he shares culture a lot. And he's now being trained as a songman for his tribe. Um, so they're still in very much in connection with their original practices and beliefs. Right. Some people are and some people aren't. But he explained to me how different our values are. So white values is basically a lot around materialism and money and stuff like that. That's why we're having a trouble about our trees getting knocked down, cut down and you know our earth being destroyed by money interests. Mm. Uh, and then he said, we have a totally different value system. And I said, okay, well, what is it? And I had no idea. And he said, what we most highly value is knowledge. And I was like, oh, this is so interesting. He taught me something, like a few sentences, and I said, oh, what's all that about? And he goes, well, it's about knowledge and being you know, being initiated and being trained in spiritual knowledge. And earning so, knowledge and going through rites. Well, of... a lot of it is to do with spirituality because in our culture, spirituality almost doesn't exist. Mm. So um, it's being destroyed by science and, you know, overrun but by even science. Sci- but scientific knowledge is being completely attacked and destroyed, even within our culture that created where that science comes from. To some Just extent. rank power abuse, right? Yeah, to some extent, of course, with the I mean, denialism and all that. But I'm getting at something deeper yeah, in that when you talk with Indigenous people, spirituality is something they feel physically and experience and learn and teach. Mm. Just the same as breathing, right? Eating, yep. you know, this in is everything, a normal part imminent. of life. That's why they see nature and ourselves as one, and they see the spirit in everything. We have a spirit inside of us. 
well, why would we think that that same spirit didn't exist in your cat or your tree? So they see that and they feel that and they know that to be true. So therefore they are the number one guardians of the planet because Mm. they have that deep spiritual connection and belief and knowledge that it's true and real and Mm. they experience ritual and they experience spirituality as something very powerful, which it is. And we are the babies. We Mm. are the ignorant children Mm. and they are the grandparents and they are here to teach us. Mm. So that's a whole switching around of the whole perspective of our lives Mm. that the indigenous people need to become Mm. our teachers, our leaders, and we need to bow down Mm. to our grandparents Mm. and accept that they know more than we do. Yes. Massively. Yes. I agree. (laughs) Represent. Dirty Shelly. I love it. Thank you so much for mentioning about um, Indigenous voices because it's something that I have been becoming more and more aware of and Indigenous voices are becoming louder and louder in my ears and all the prophecies of all the uh, tribes across the planet prophesying this time Mm. and calling for the Rainbow Tribe to come forward and save the planet. This is the Hopi Indian prophecy that is now Mm. coming true. Mm. So part of that has always been the unification of all cultures, all Indigenous people, all voices of all cultures sharing and learning from each other and bringing together the parts of the jigsaw puzzle that have to show us the answers and teach us the answers. And you know, if the CSIRO still had funding, this stuff wouldn't be on the agenda. It could be, though. So there's, there's something about, yeah, like nurturing and nourishing opportunities to take another look at knowledges that have been disqualified or minimised or muted through like a pretty unjust sort of development of, of very industrial, technical Western you know, pseudo-rational thinking of to sort of dominate the modern world, right? Now it's is not, the uh... time for the flowering. Now is the time. Now is the time, now is the opportunity, because everybody's been shaken up, and this is like when we're talking about Byron Bay, we see the bad side, we see the good side, we see the karma, we see the flow. So the flow is the future. Right now we have the choice. We either get stuck in the past, stuck in the Industrial Revolution, which should be over by now, and Mm. pass through into a more natural return-to-nature type of world. Like in Byron Bay, a lot of people are physically returning to live off-grid, physically returning to live on the land, in the forest, connecting every day to nature. That's part of the beauty of that Mm. lifestyle. And also listening to Indigenous voices. And Indigenous voices are getting louder if you stop Mm. to listen. In Australia, in other countries... And you and I could be part of that by bringing those voices to a wider community, well, whatever ways we can, and to also speak to how important those voices are. I try to do that by just starting off being humble about whatever it is that I know or think I know. Um, I was at a fantastic conference with some amazing like First Nations cultural leaders at the start of the year, and uh, you know, they're just sort of a, a couple of guys just had a view of like oh, we look at how sick and unhappy you guys are. And, you know, in The Guardian, you can read all these articles about um, moralizing about close-the-gap problems that are very real in themselves. But but these guys were sort of showing me that they're just sort of looking at colonized white society and all the deep repression that we try to function with every day and the lack of happiness and, and the lack of connection. And they just feel sort of sorry for us, you know, and they can't tell the well-meaning progressives from the rapacious right-wing capital accumulators. Like, they can't tell the fucking difference. And, well, some and people can. Some people can. And again, on either side, I don't know if that's objectively right, 
but I understand why that's not clear. Do you know what I mean? It's the and and so for me, I just try to bring that humility and you know I sort of rather ask questions and tell people what's going on. Well, I agree, and I really love that you mentioned the word humility and to be humble because I can tell you something. When something like COVID happens and it's very scary, and you think, oh, the whole society can just fall to pieces if you know if it suddenly starts, you know, like causing massive breakdown of structures and lack of availability of supermarket products and all sorts of stuff. For me, living on the land, all of a sudden, you are totally humbled by the Mm. fact that you don't know how to make fire. You don't know how Mm. to grow food enough to live on. I don't know how my toaster works. You don't know how to hunt, you know, if you are a meat eater, you don't know how to catch an animal and and prepare it to eat. You do not know how to survive in Mm. nature. There's a basic alienation from ourselves. It's all gone. All the knowledge is gone. Originally, we started out with all that knowledge and then it was taken away by the Industrial Revolution. But Indigenous people, say, for example, in the Solomon Islands, it's 80% subsistence farmers who live on their land, grow their food, Mm. catch their fish. They live without electricity, they live without cars, they live without petrol, they just live Mm. on the land all the time, 80% of that country. And so I just feel humbled when I realise that, you know, when you're sitting faced with a major pandemic, faced with the possibility you may not have food to eat if all the supermarkets suddenly close, how you will survive and what happens... This is the emotional basis of the hardship of this year, it's been a... A bit well, of a wake-up call. It's bit of a... Climate change destroys everything we know. How are you mm. going to go back to nature? Mm. You don't have the knowledge. You're going to have to find an Indigenous person to help you survive. We've had a theme in the lever this year about unmasking and mask slipping. So the preferred narrative not being possible with that mask slipping and some of the stark realities of how we live being showed to us through this public health crisis and hardship. Yeah, And it does. Um, I think we'll learn some things, possibly learn the wrong things out of it. I mean, I think it sucks that, say, if we're, like, you know, a bunch of well-meaning, like, white post-colonial Australians try to, like, appreciate what's happening in the Solomon Islands, the community that you spoke of, um, they'll just do some kind of noble, savage mythologizing and, and still not really get to the truth of it. So there's always these opportunities to step wrong. And, and again, that's just where I come back to the humble, you know, the humility as a sort of a driving force of knowledge. You put any white person out in the bush or out on some island somewhere, it's sort of like, um, you know. just and wills it. Well, just well, fuck it up. Well, you're going to be looking at some movie called Survival with people are sort of starving to death. Yeah. And then you go and you live with indigenous people who are living like that all the time and they're just so healthy and happy because they are so more knowledgeable than we are about what's real when it comes down to brass tacks. Mm-hmm. You know, what What are you going to do? What are you going to do when, you know, there's no supermarket to buy food from or whatever, there's no petrol to drive? Mm. Yeah, you know, that's the sort of thought that went through my mm. mind at the beginning of yes. COVID because I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, look what happened in Italy. All of a sudden I was, you know, starting to get a bit afraid that, you know, I mean, we're going to lockdown even to get food is quite difficult. You know, things start running out in the supermarket. Whatever happens, mm. disasters can happen that leave you isolated, especially when you live in the country, especially when you mm. live up there. You can be flooded in. You can be, you know, on the situation where fire, you know, you're isolated by fire. I mean, that's the number one thing that Australians need to realise. You are living on a very fragile place, Australia. Climate change denial is ridiculous. It's still going on. Last week, a friend of mine who has a friend who's a meteorologist said, 
They're not going to have children because in 50 years' time, Australia will not be inhabitable. So this is the sort of stuff scientists are saying. This is the sort of stuff we are ignoring every single day. If we do not take action now to fight climate change. Indigenous people know how to do that because they just live lightly and simply on the land. And part of the beauty of the Byron Bay life is a lot of people are doing that too. White people learning how to go back, grow their own food, raise their chickens, eat them, <laughs> eat their eggs. And that is actually something that we up there realise is something everybody actually needs to get in touch with. But we don't want meat. The reality. To, we don't want the meat we look we eat to actually look like the animals <laughs> that we love so dearly, do we, Judy? That's well, there's people up there that will, will not actually eat anything they didn't grow themselves because they don't want to see that separation between the reality of the yeah. fact you are eating an animal. Yeah. And if you grow your own animal, you love it and you care for it, one day it will pass away. So yeah. some people think that's okay, but there's a lot of extreme vegans who will not touch any animal product as well. Mm. And they are actually perhaps people that will help save the planet because, as we know, meat agriculture is a big climate change problem. Yeah, but, but also there's a there's a critique of white veganism too mm-hmm. about um, that it sort of attacks meat like sustainable meat eating practices of first nations people or of uh, other other cultures and multicultural you know yeah, it's a, it's a, it gets thorny and difficult it shouldn't do that because basically a lot of really more open-minded vegans say just do what you can they don't expect everybody to give up meat a real vegan that really understands about animals and humans will actually step back and say we just want you to do the best you can yeah there's a couple of really high profile like vegan tiktokers who do some real, like, getting in people's faces and stuff. And mm. I think, like, what I've seen mainly from myself is um, if I'm around a vegan friend, I immediately project my own self-loathing <laughs> uh, onto them that they must be judging me. And uh, I've seen other people do it where the, the vegetarian or vegan person has not a bad word to say, not a bad look, not a passive-aggressive movement of their body. Mm. Um, not an arch of their eyebrow, That's right. and yet the meat eater will like suddenly feel like this intense critique that is really like they're having a conversation with themselves in that moment, you know. And I I felt that myself as well. I've I've been vegetarian at times and eaten meat a lot of the time, and uh, so you know, like I'm not just a bike rider; I'm also a driver who struggles to get around bikes. And life's very complex, but the, you know, we can't actually solve these things staying divided and drawing harsh barriers and this is a bit where my heterodox approach comes as well because essentially at the end of the day we are all in it together and every zombie movie I've ever seen involves people with radical different ideas and offensive mutually exclusive offensive ideas between the group having to get together and like survive. Mm, Well that's right it's another thing that you realize when you live in a small community and you can get cut off by natural disasters all Mm. of a sudden you are relying on your neighbors straight up and what their politics are doesn't come into it anymore. We, we are together. We're one community. We live next door to each other. If somebody's in trouble, we have to help. We are a what does community. It mean? Like, we uh, are people together. Does this mean that, like, after we punch that Nazi, we need to make sure we bring a cold compress? <laughs> like, I don't know what um, that says. I haven't got a theory about this, but I'm asking the question. I am actually against violence, so I wouldn't be punching anybody. So uh, that's my answer. <laughs> what a um, segue that could be but we might just say I might just say thank you so much for sharing all your amazing ideas and this sort of um, almost turned into something that 
could go one multicultural nation. I didn't know that at the start, but uh, just what's on our both our minds. That's what I love about podcasting is that conversations go in directions that I could never plan. Like we had a little of a bit of a brief chat. This all kind of fits in, but we've actually managed to grow onto what we talked about, haven't we? I'd be very happy if you want to share it with Multicultural Nation Radio right. Show. Let's do that. Amazing. You know, it'll be just like it was 2017 and I was up there <laughs> yep. getting my squeaky voice <laughs> up on the uh, Byron Bay community, uh, community station there. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Judy. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our audience? Are there any like um, resources that people who are interested in stuff can go check out that you'd like to sort of you know put out there? Oh, I can, the only thing I can think of really is to um, check out our Facebook page, Multicultural Nation, FM 99.9. We have a Facebook page, so I put a lot of interesting stuff on there. Some of it goes on the show. Some of it's just around general ideas that we're trying to get across. And also you can go to bayfm.org, and there you can listen back to all our previous shows. You just click on programs, or you can live stream and listen to any show live via the internet. So that's all I can think of right now. Right on, right on. Well, also, we'll just, um, you know, speaking of a good reason to have humble knowledge is that um, I haven't actually acknowledged that we're doing this on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri, Boonwurrung and Woiwurrung, people of the Kulin Nation. So, um, you know, always, well, as always, will be Aboriginal land. And whether I insert this at the end, I might actually, might, I might not cut this out and chuck it at the front. I might keep it at the back here to do a bit of um, demonstrated practice you always want to be humble in your knowledge because you never know when you're going to realise that you've got an ass cheek hanging out, you know, and I think uh, that's important. But, yeah, I just want to, um, yeah, thank you so much uh, for sharing everything with us and, you know, hati hati dijalan, temanaku. Terima kasih. Sampai jumpa lagi. All right. Thanks, Jude. Take care out there, everyone, and we'll continue this conversation in future episodes. Bye-bye. So now it's time to like and subscribe to the Lever podcast. Go over to YouTube and check for dissatisfunctional.com. Uh, spelt just the way it sounds. This is the perfect time to share the stuff that you like with your friends. So if you've liked the conversation today, then please leave us a review in the Apple Store. Do have a Patreon. You can chuck something in the tip jar for $2 and you'll get special unreleased B-sides. But no one's got a job. How are you going to pay for that? You just have a listen. You enjoy it. And tune in for next time the intro track you're listening to is by neil lawrence who's done a great remix of the bullshit song i made on garage band so thanks very much neil if you're listening out there talented man and if you're new go and check out the previous episodes you'll definitely find something that speaks to you all right everyone thanks for tuning in see you again